This is the Frey Podcast, brought to you by thefrey.com, a place for women who want more from life. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to today's podcast episode. It's a conversation with nutritionist, dietitian, and now author, Lindy Cohen, Her new book is titled, Your Weight is Not the Problem. It is a simple, no diet plan for healthy habits that actually stick. This episode is all about shifting your attention away from making yourself smaller or making your physical body any different to how it is right now and bringing your attention towards what you can actually do how you can actually learn to listen to your cues, understand your body, and build self-esteem that is separate to how you look. It's a massive topic. Uh, It's a conversation that I really enjoyed having with Lindy. If you've not heard of her, I've popped her link in the show notes. Jump on over. I'm sure you're going to enjoy having her in your Instagram feed. She also has a podcast as well. Before I touch a little more on today's episode, I thought I would have a bit of a life update with you. If you've listened to the most recent episodes or followed along on social media, you will know I've been in and out of hospital appointments this week with an ulcer on my right eye. I'm now eight, nine days on from first having that ulcer, eight days, I think. Uh, And I'm allowed to drop my, no pun intended, but I'm allowed to reduce my eye drops down from hourly throughout the day to two hourly, which is very exciting. And I don't have to do the eye drops overnight anymore as well. It was really, really rough there for a bit having to do eye drops on the hour, every hour overnight. So I can't tell you how nice it is to sleep through the night again. It was only a very uh, temporary interruption, but you still just feel it, right? Like when you're waking up that much, you still just feel so exhausted. I'm feeling much more like myself today. I still don't have great vision or clear vision at all out of my right eye, but I have kind of peripheral vision that is still blurry. My ophthalmologist has said I am fine to drive, which is a relief as well. Uh, I'm struggling a little bit with depth perception close up, not when I'm driving, but just close up, like pouring cereal for the kids or making lunches, reading emails on the computer, that sort of thing. And I have a cracking headache, which I think is probably due to the fact that I have been on the computer a lot more the last couple of days. It's not an opportune, like it's not the ideal time to be launching a new website and working on everything behind the scenes with the rebrand of the podcast. But this is life, right? Like I feel like so often as adults, 
we're always telling ourselves, like, I've just got to get through this week or I've just got to get through that challenge or this challenge and then everything will get back to normal. And it's like, nope, it's just going to be like you get through this challenge or this week or whatever it is, and then there will be something else to get through. And life is just what's happening while you're navigating all of that. So that said, I am feeling brighter. I also thought I would share a recommendation for a TV show that we have been watching recently, not the last week because I can't really look at a TV screen. But prior to that, Brendan and I started watching Shrinking on Apple TV. It has Jason Segel and Harrison Ford in it to name a few of the, well, they're the main main two characters, I guess. Um, and there are a lot of familiar faces in there as well. And Shrinking, like to be honest, it's not a show that I would typically look at and feel drawn to put it on. I don't know what's wrong with me, but I don't tend to gravitate towards kind of wholesome series, like the wholesome series kind of genre. Um, I've never watched Ted Lasso, Ted Ted Lasso, whatever it is. Um, But we flicked it on one night because I do really like Jason Segel and we have enjoyed it so much. Uh, Whenever we get the chance, we're watching an episode. It deals with heavy subjects, like it deals with grief and loss, uh, but in a very light way. And it's just like a very pleasant kind of feel-good show, even though there are tricky things in there. It's just a very, very easy watch. So if you're looking for something that is not your true crime documentary, uh, if you're just looking to mix it up a bit, maybe give Shrinking a try. I know Brendan is really enjoying it, and he definitely laughs out loud at a lot of it as well. The premise of it is it's about three psychologists uh, working together in a clinic, and then it kind of offshoots into how they have all these different crossovers in their life, and they are like a like a family. And then it, of course, explores different themes with the clients that attend the psychology clinic, and they're all going through their own stuff with their own families. And it's just, yeah, very easy to watch. So if you're looking for something new to pop on this weekend, give Shrinking a go. All right, what else to update with? If you followed along, you'll know that we've trialed one of the boys at a new school as well. I can't really report on how that's going yet because we're right in the thick of it. We're just giving it a go. But I can share with you that, you know, I don't know how it's going to go for him. Uh, I had a bit of a chat on Instagram over on stories, as I do, as I pull in from dropping the boys off at school and I'll often have a chat in the car which Brendan was kind of ripping on me, lovingly ripping on me the other day. He's like, you know what? I feel like I associate garage workouts and conversations in your car driveway with you in the car driveway. But I was sharing that, you know, we've made a decision to try sending one of the boys to a different school, which feels kind of massive considering he is an identical twin and he has never been without his brother Like they've always been in the same class because they've always attended a very, very small school. And like as a parent, sometimes it just feels like you can never get it right. (laughs) Like I chose that school because I wanted the nurturing environment of a smaller school. And then I wonder in hindsight if I've, you know, ripped the boys off of being, of having experiences of developing resilience and having the opportunity to connect with different kids but you just kind of make the decision 
at the time as you go, right? Like with the information that you have at hand. And so, you know, I, I made that decision to send them to that smaller school. And it's like now that the boys are nine, they're turning 10 at the end of the year. One of them's doing pretty well at that school. He is like a member of like the little school council. He's really feeling himself, but he has said repeatedly he hates being called the twins. And it's such a small school um, and they are the only twins in the school. And so teachers do refer to them as the twins and they lump them together. And he is definitely going through his own identity shift where he's trying to carve out who he is separate to being a twin separate to being, you know, this joint unit. And so he has expressed that he would really like a little bit of space. And I respect that. And I understand that. And I've always tried to encourage their individuality and also straddle that fine line of, yes, I want him to be an individual, but also you are a twin. And how do we navigate the family responsibility of looking after one another without it being like you are in charge of babysitting your twin brother. So there's all these different dynamics at play. There's only like six or seven kids at their school that are within their age bracket actually. And so therefore they've had to share friends. And one of the boys, the one who is student council, he's settled in, he's really enjoying his little friendship circle, whereas my other son just hasn't been able to connect with the kids that are at the school in the same way that his brother has. And it has to be hard, right? Like if you've only got seven, 10 people to choose from and you don't have shared interest with any of those people, of course, you're going to feel left out, more isolated, all of those things. And this is just, you know, I'm processing in real time and sharing with you the way that I've been thinking and all of that. Just for those of you who are interested, again, you might want to skip forward a bit. I wouldn't blame you. But just I've been thinking like he needs the opportunity to meet a variety of different children. He needs the opportunity to develop the skill set of having friends separate from his brother. They both need that. And just like exposure, exposure to different things. And he's getting that (laughs) after day one, he came home home and he told me some of the things that another child told him at this bigger school. And I'm like, oh yes, yes, there, there, that is, there is the gap between a very sheltered kind of smaller school versus a much bigger school. They're both public schools, but anyway, that's where we're at. We're trying. I am so incredibly proud of him for trying, you know, he went off uh, to the school and there were no tears There was no like death grip onto my wrist, like, please don't leave me. And so that alone is a win. If he can't settle into the school, which I know is so hard to know what's a realistic settling period, all of that stuff, I'm just figuring it out as we go. But regardless of what happens, and the wheels did come off a little bit on the afternoon of the first day with another child pushing him, but I'll save that for another day. Um, But even if the wheels come off completely, I still feel like it's a massive win that he was confident enough to go along and try. And I think that the reason he was able to do that is because we've really focused over the last year of building up his self-esteem and his self-efficacy in manageable ways. You know, like six months ago, nine months ago, I don't think he would have managed to start off at a new school in a new class in a school that is significantly bigger than his. 
I just don't think he would have done it. Like I think he would have gone to pieces and it would have been very, very hard to just get him to go initially. But these little things that we've done, like, you know, when we took him to jujitsu and he didn't want to join in, but then Brendan said, I'll stand right behind you. Like I will stand right here. And he did it. And now he loves it. And he's going to jujitsu regularly and going to like the um, waterfalls and jumping off the waterfalls into the water, jumping off the bridge. All of those little things have added up, I think, incrementally to really improve his self-efficacy, which is the belief he has in himself that he can do things because he has practiced pushing through that doubt and that fear. So that's really the only other thing happening in my life at the moment. Uh, My mom is meant to be looking after the boys this weekend because Brenda and I are meant to be going to a little country town for him to tick off something that is on his bucket list. But I've just got to see how I feel about being in the car for such a long time with this eye uh, in terms of light sensitivity. So not thrilling updates, guys, but I haven't been on stories a lot this week. So I thought I would have a bit of a chat with you before uh, hitting play, sorry, hitting share on today's podcast episode. So as I said up top, this one is a conversation with Lindy Cohen. We are chatting about things like diet culture. We touch on eating disorders. um, We speak about obsessive thoughts and all of that sort of stuff and the pressure that is put on so many of us to weigh less. If these topics are triggering for you, please practice self-care and caution. And if you need to skip this episode, that is totally okay. Lindy does share her story about how she became a nutritionist and dietitian, why she's so passionate about it, and why she has written this book, which as I mentioned up top is titled, Your Weight Is Not The Problem. So without further rambling on from yours truly, let's get into today's conversation. Actually, 10 more seconds of rambling. We do have a part two with Lindy. So Lindy and I continued the conversation and we went through a round of myth busting, right? So I asked Lindy questions like, do we need to detox? Should I be doing a juice cleanse? Does bloating mean that I have an intolerance? Is gluten bad for all of us? All, all of those sorts of things that we hear so much about just floating around in the zeitgeist, like how you shouldn't be doing this and you shouldn't be doing that. And you need to da, 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 all the stuff. So Lindy just goes through and does a round of myth busting. That episode will be live over on our Venti members area. So come on over if you're not a Venti member yet. It basically means that you get a third podcast every single week. So you get your Monday, your Friday, and then we love you extra harder on a Wednesday. So you get that bonus episode. Uh, Those episodes can be a variety of solo episodes or guest interviews or extensions of conversations with guests. You will get access to the back catalog of episodes. So every episode that is up, you will have. And I personally, like, obviously I think that having that extra episode is nice if you enjoy the podcast because you can just, you know, get more of what you already like. But for me, the big draw card would be the fact that none of these episodes have ads. So even your Monday and Friday episode will no longer have ads if you become a Venti member. I think that appeals to me because in the last year, I've really been trying to prioritize like being grateful and being aware 
of the content creators in my life that I really enjoy and feeling good about supporting them. So I have a couple of podcasts that I am a subscriber of over on Patreon. Um, I haven't yet subscribed to anyone on Instagram, but there are a few creators that I really, really enjoy, but they do also have podcasts. So I've subscribed to those. Um, but yeah, just feeling like, you know what? Ads are kind of annoying. Sometimes I want to, I usually skip ads. I'm sure a lot of you do as well. And so it feels good to me to go, okay, this is someone that I enjoy having in my ears. This is a podcast that I always listen to. The $7 a month feels like a fair exchange to me for supporting the content creation of three podcast episodes a week. Because yes, I can sit down and record these episodes, but there are production fees. It's There's a, there's a lot that goes into organizing podcast episodes, truly. Um, and so, yeah, if you want to become a Venti member, jump on over. We do have that extension of today's conversation with Lindy where we are myth busting and I loved it. I love chatting with her. We even got into like how so many health professionals have eating disorders as well and how we have to practice uh, being really conscious of who is giving us advice. And I share a story in that episode that I have never shared before about when I was a flight attendant and I went to purchase this lemon detox drink. And I share in that episode what it was that the naturopath at the time said to me that I found so offensive, uh, but I also really, really like hand on my heart needed to hear. So jump on over. There will be a link in our show notes. Become a Venti member for the cost of a cup of coffee per month. You get at least four bonus episodes, the back catalog, ad free, blah, 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 all the stuff. Let's get into my conversation with Lindy Cohen. Lindy, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy day to have this conversation with me. Oh my goodness, what a pleasure. Thank you for having me on your show. Of course. You have just released a book and it's called Your Weight is Not the Problem. Tell me all about the inception for this book. Why did you feel the drive to create a book about your weight not being the problem? Mm, I mean, I grew up thinking my weight was such a problem. So I was probably five years old where I, when I realized that I was bigger than the other kids. But it wasn't until I was 11 that I felt there was something wrong with my body. I went to see a nutritionist for the first time. I was well within the healthy weight range for my BMI, but she understood that I wanted to be thin. And so what she gave me was a meal plan and she promised me it wasn't a diet, but it was absolutely a diet. She told me what to eat, when to eat, to count my calories, to weigh out my food each day, to record it in a diary. Remembering I'm 11 years old at this point. And I diligently followed and so began the next 10 years of feeling like my weight was this big problem. I think we can think that you know, focusing on your weight is something like a vanity metrics, as though it's like, oh, what does it really matter? It's you just care about how you look. No, your weight has such an impact on how you feel about yourself. Uh, reliably, someone commenting my weight was the one thing that could bring me to tears. And as long as I kept trying to change my weight, to lose weight, the more out of reach my weight goals became, the more I began binge eating, feeling out of control around food. You know, I really knew what I should be eating, but I couldn't stick to it. And I feel like once I graduated as a dietitian, this seemed like such a huge problem to me where, you know, majority of people are struggling to, you know, 
feel like they're at the right weight. We're always feeling like we're never thin or pretty or good enough. And it just felt like all this nutrition noise was making it so much harder for us to just eat when we were hungry and eat what felt good for our bodies. And it's, I know for myself that the more I kept trying to diet, the more weight I ended up gaining. So after 10 years of this nonsense, I was like, right, we're not going to diet anymore. I quit dieting. And over the next four years, I lost for 20 kilograms, but it wasn't never the metric of how I measured my success. And so I guess this book was really important because it's everything I wish I had known as a 15 year old girl who was struggling with body image, who hated herself so much, who really was felt like her weight was the biggest problem. And I think the thing I want people to know is that your your weight isn't the problem. The problem is the way that we've been taught to think about food, the way we've been taught that you need to be obsessed around food, that weighing less is always the best case scenario, the way that we've been using BMI to measure our success when it comes to our health. And I think that if you find that you're struggling with your weight, if you're constantly yo-yo dieting, if you're either eating perfectly or like binge eating Ben and Jerry's ice cream or face planting into the pantry, then there's nothing wrong with your willpower. There's nothing wrong with your self-control. You've been given the wrong approach to health. Absolutely. And there are so many things that you touched on then that I was like nodding along, particularly just that feeling of being such a young child, but being cognizant that thinner or being slimmer, being smaller equals being better. And I think that we're all just swimming in this water of society that tells us thinner is better. There's thin privilege is a very real thing. Fat phobia is a very real thing. And I have to admit, I was a little nervous even coming into our conversation today because, I mean, I don't know you personally, but I follow you online and I adore you. I was a little bit nervous because we're two quote unquote straight size women having a conversation about our bodies, but you just touched on something that I think is so relevant. You just said that you hated yourself and that sensation of hating yourself, whilst we might not have the experience of living in a larger body and facing a lot of the fat phobic side of things, the sensation of hating yourself doesn't discriminate against what size body you're in. Does that make sense? Totally. There's so many layers to this conversation on our relationship with our weight. And that's why the title of your book drew me in. Your weight is not the problem. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at UH1.com. I think we live in a world that tells us that we would be better, that our lives would, everything would work out, that we would be happier if we just weighed less. And that doesn't discriminate regardless of what size you are. I think it's near impossible to live in the society that's constantly telling us we need to weigh less and not have crappy body image days, days where we just look in the mirror and we go, I feel, ugh, I hate how I look. And sure, as straight size, we're not affected by weight discrimination. And there's a whole bunch of weight stigma that impacts how people can actually access healthcare. It's big, serious stuff. But 
I know that some of the world's most beautiful people are the most insecure about how they look. And I think that body image and liking yourself is the most important thing that we can accomplish, you know, regardless of any outward success that you can have. If you go to bed at night liking who you are, you don't lie in bed at night obsessing over whether you are good or bad. You don't feel guilt and shame around, you know, feeling like you're not good enough. If we don't have that dialogue in our head, and I, I used to have that all the time, I think that is my new definition of what success and what the life I'd like to build and, and to help people build because, people can sell you beauty and they can sell you all different kinds of diet traps. But what I'm really after is helping you get that unconditional confidence, confidence that doesn't come off when you take off your makeup, confidence that doesn't come off when you remove your your Spanx or it doesn't require you having false eyelashes on. That kind of innate confidence is really, really worthy. Yeah, absolutely. And it's one of those things I think if our listeners can relate and they do feel consumed by how they look, by how much they weigh, you know, I've certainly been there. I've struggled with eating disorders, particularly in my early 20s. And it's something I always every day have to make a choice to work, walk away from, work away from. But if someone is listening and they are struggling with that kind of obsessiveness, something that I think is a really worthwhile thought exercise is to wonder what could you do with your life if you didn't spend so much energy thinking about it? You know, like if you weren't obsessed with losing that last five kilos, if you weren't obsessed with eating a certain amount of calories, you could like, we could change the world really with all of that brain power that we're spending on this stuff. Amen. Uh, Being obsessed by our weight and by food keeps our lives small. You can't live a full life on an empty stomach. You can't reach your full potential if every thought keeps coming back to reps at the gym or calories in or versus calories out. Your headspace is so preoccupied by what you're eating. I think it limits your potential so greatly. And it actually ironically makes healthy eating so much harder. So when we look at the research around, well, what happens on our, with our brain when we go on a diet, loads of things happen to us physiologically and psychologically. So firstly, you get increased cravings for the very foods you're trying to reduce and avoid. Uh, Not only do these foods become more appealing, but when you do actually eat them, you feel like you're out of control around them. They're highly enticing and exciting. So there's a very interesting research piece of research that I talk about in the book, and it's the macaroni and cheese study. So what they did is they gave participants macaroni and cheese as much as they could eat every single day. At the beginning of the experiment, the participants were really excited to eat macaroni and cheese because macaroni and cheese, right? And so they ate as much as they wanted. And what they noticed is that as the experiment went on, participants ate less and less macaroni and cheese. So what is interesting about this is that when we have full permission to eat a certain food, even if it's something as exciting and delicious as macaroni and cheese, if we know we have full availability to it, that we can eat as much as we need to feel satisfied, it stops being as interesting to us. Now, when I say to you, you're not allowed to have carbs or sugar, what becomes highly interesting are things like ice cream and pasta peanut butter straight from the jar, bowls of cereal, loaves of bread, biscuits, cookies, these foods that people often tell me they end up binge eating on are the very foods we are depriving ourselves of. So there is certainly a correlation. And if, you know, if you're someone that goes, I feel a bit out of control with food, think about the foods that you allow yourself to have during the, you know, a normal day versus the foods you feel out of control with. 
chances are there is a disconnect between these foods. And part of what this book is trying to help us to do is to renormalize these foods. So like the macaroni and cheese, they just become foods again. I remember when I was a dieter, <laughs> I'd look at people who would have a few bites of dessert and then they'd push it away because they didn't want any more. And I was like, what are you? Who are you, a unicorn? People who say they forget to eat. I thought they were lying. How could that be? But when your life isn't preoccupied by food, when, when you know things like pasta isn't hugely exciting to you because you can have it at any time, it loses some of its allure. It's still enjoyable, but you don't feel obsessed with it and you get so much more headspace. And interestingly, beyond even headspace, you have so much more ability to actually make healthy choices because suddenly, you know, you don't sit down at a menu and go, you know, at a restaurant and look at a menu and say, you know, I shouldn't have the burger or I shouldn't have the chips. You go, what would make my body feel really good? What do I actually feel like? How hungry am I? And you might na- naturally notice, I don't feel like having a burger. And we don't need to enforce willpower, which is a very flaky, fickle friend. What we actually just need is to like rely on our body, which is intuitively trying to help us eat the right amount of food, and the right types of food to make us feel good. So we need to get out of our head with all these diet rules and tune into our lovely bodies. I love all of that. And there was also a study done and I won't recall the details and the name of the study because my ADHD brain is like, ma. but I just remember there's a study that I've read about so many times and I've heard people speak about where it was like hundreds of years ago, they took a group of men and they restricted their calories. Yes. They Minnesota, re- that's Minnesota the one. Study. Yes. Yes. It's I talk all- about this in the book as well. Oh, do you? Okay. Of course you do. Cause it's, it's I essential. Knew, I knew you would know what I'm on about and you can correct me if I'm wrong because I'm might tell a tall tale here, but my recollection of that study was they reduced the calories of a group of men really low. And all of a sudden those men became kind of obsessed with cooking. Exactly. Fixated. So this was during World War II and they did an experiment to see how, what was the effects of starvation. They took 36 male participants. They put them in uh, this kind of control study. They put them on a 1,515 a 1,570 calorie diet, which is for a female equivalent of a 1,200 calorie diet. They put them on that diet. And what they found is that the men fantasized about food, that they couldn't get food off their brain. They wanted to watch cooking shows. They wanted to look at recipes. They, they would they would talk on end about what food they wanted to eat. And, and I guess what I want to say to people is, you know, when you've got a colleague or a friend who can't start talking about the diet they're on, or they, you know, they're so excited by their weight loss. And, and part of us can feel maybe jealous being like, okay, well, maybe I should try what they're doing. I want you to see their obsession with talking around food, not as a good thing, but maybe see it as, as a sign that they are fixated, obsessed, and this is a sign of disorder. And this is not something that we should be aspiring to do or to be like when we notice someone in our in our air in in our lives who won't stop talking about food. This can be often be a sign of starvation and not eating nearly enough for their body's needs. Yes. And I was reminded of this study because my partner, he fights, so he, which is a whole other conversation, but as part of the preparation for fights, he has to cut a lot of weight. And when he, when he's in his weight cutting phase, all he wants to do is watch cooking shows. And I'm like, this is it. I'm living the Minnesota study. Like all you want to do is watch back to back cooking shows when you're starving yourself. And, you know, he does it for a sport. It's kind of a different thing to how I look at it. It can still be triggering, but it's different 
to an extent. But yeah, just seeing it in real time, like he just wants to watch cooking shows. Yeah, like, of course you do. <laughs> And we so often think when we go on a diet that our body is failing us, that if only I had better willpower, I'd be able to stick to the diet. Um, Maybe you're at the point where you've tried multiple diets and each attempt is actually getting less and less successful. And that's because of this body's inbuilt protective mechanism, right? So when we are under eating, like within this study, what we're going to find is this preoccupation with food. That's our body's way of trying to get us, convince us to eat more food because we're not eating enough for its needs. So our body has a whole bunch of mechanisms to try and help us be healthy, to try and protect us. The point is there is nothing wrong with your willpower. There is nothing wrong with your self-control. The whole idea of the diet is setting you up for failure. And I just want to point out that I think the definition of what a diet is needs to be well truly expanded because I think we have this idea, well, maybe it's got the word diet in the name. We know intermittent fasting. We know that's kind of a diet. We know Atkins diet. We know macro counting is a diet. But what I talk about in the book is this idea that if you've had a history of dieting or trying to lose weight, you're probably going to have myriad of diet rules that are lingering in your brain, taking up precious headspace, making it really hard to make food decisions. So you could have things that are saying, well, coffee is good for me. No coffee is bad for me. Or I should eat carbs, but I'm only allowed to have this many carbs. I shouldn't have pasta. And if I do, it has to be. And you think about all hundreds of these diet rules. And as long as you have all these diet rules existing in your brain, you might say to me, I'm not dieting. But if you still have all these diet rules, you are dieting. And it makes it really hard to eat intuitively and eat according to your hunger when someone is eating intuitively, they truly do eat according to what their body needs. And what I find very interesting is intuitive eating. It's a hugely accurate way to eat according to your body's needs. So we can eat within um, 50 calories of our body's energy expenditure for the day, which is a hugely accurate way of eating. If we're simply tuning into our hunger and stopping when we feel full, compare this to a meal plan that spits out an arbitrary number, eat 1600 calories every single day, Some days you're going to burn lots of energy depending on when your period is or how you slept or what the weather is doing or all these things impact on how much energy you spend. So we we don't need to blame our appetite and say, oh, there's something wrong with my appetite. I'm just hungry all the time. There's something wrong with me. There isn't. Your appetite is an incredibly accurate system in the exact same way your body knows when you need to use the toilet or it knows when it's t- when you're tired and gives you these very clear signals. We're very good at listening to those clues, but when it comes to our hunger, we doubt that entire inbuilt weight management system that's the sole purpose of appetite is to help us eat the right amount of fuel for our body. And if you do nothing else, <laughs> if the only thing you take away from this conversation is to practice asking yourself before you eat, am I hungry? And simply try and tune into your hunger, eat according to your hunger needs, finish eating when you feel comfortably full, then just doing that one thing alone can have a huge impact on your health and your relationship with food. I'm glad that you brought up the diet rules because we all have them, you know, whether it's because we heard our parents speak about them or we grew, I mean, we all grew up with it. I'm not sure how old you are. I'm 35 and I know I grew up with magazines that were all about the latest celebrity diet, the latest, you know, Beyonce's detox, how to lose weight like Nicole Richie and Paris Hilton. Like those were kind of the poster girls of my time growing up. And I have so many diet rules still just bouncing around my brain. How do we actually begin to dial those diet rules down? Mm. 
and I, I'm the same age as you. So we got, we got, we got hit so hard by diet culture. And I, I'll tell you who got hit, hit even harder is our parents' generation. So the boomer generation, they got hit so hard. So they were the Jane Fonda generation. They've had everything we had plus so much more. And so also in the book, I talk about this idea of our, our mothers, our parents, their input and how that influences our relationship with food. And if you're a parent, how can we not pass that on to our kids? That is a really big one, especially if you have a history of dieting <laughs> and we have all these diet rules. It's really hard to know, oh, I want to help my kids be healthy, but I don't want to say the wrong thing and I don't want to make them not like their bodies. So I give you guidance on how to do that too, because it's a big one. And it's a mindset. Oh my goodness. As a parent, I get it. It's, it's a minefield. But how do we dial back on these diet rules, which is such a good question. Firstly, we have to become aware of them. And, you know, simply by us having this conversation, you're probably going to go, oh yeah, I probably feel like I shouldn't eat too much sugar. And, and you have all these different rules. So um, in the book, I give you an activity about how do we start to recognize all these diet rules. We start to kind of keep tabs on them. And then very slowly, we start to eliminate them one by one, starting with the ones that are having the greatest impact on the way that we're eating. It could be something like, I give an example of this idea that, you know, I'm not allowed to eat pasta. And we can we can use both logical reasoning, so kind of going, well, there are loads of people in the world who do eat pasta and who are healthy and who are at a weight that is, you know, comfortable for them. And then we can also just do physical challenges where so often what we do is the way we eat in front of other people can be quite perfect. And then what we eat when we're at home after a really long day, or we're feeding the kids their snacks in the afternoon, and we're grabbing whatever we can from them, that there can be such a divide between our public eating and our and our private eating. And so what we want to do is give ourselves permission to be going, well, these foods that I've taken off limits, I need to be eating them in social circumstances. This isn't, so I know people who go out for dinner and they'll never order dessert, but then we come home and we eat a whole block of chocolate. So we want to flip the script a little bit so that when we're out, we're sharing ice cream with friends. This is the time to be enjoying ourselves and and, and not doing it the other way around. We put a lot of morality onto food, don't we? And shame. And it's like, this is empirical. I'm good if I eat this way and I'm bad if I eat that way. Mm. It's a lot of shame, I think, particularly, as you said, if you're not willing to eat publicly the way in which you eat privately like privately you might be stood in front of your pantry just hoovering things in whereas publicly you're very uh what's the word like restricted with what you eat or you know a little slower and that sort of stuff Mm. it just sounds like shame to me oh absolutely it's such a loaded concept because And I think the thing I find most sinister about dieting is not the fact that ultimately it leads to weight gain over many years, but I think the worst thing is when you fail a diet, you don't blame the diet, you blame yourself. Now, not only do you hate your body, but you have your sense of self, your your worth as a person to blame. Your very essence of who you are is questioned. And ultimately, the reason we're going on a diet to try and lose weight is because we want to be loved and respected. And so it really plays into such a huge part of confidence in who we are that, as I said, this idea of your weight is not trivial. It is important, big stuff that we need to be working on. I know when I was young and I was in the height of my eating disorder, I was so deeply ashamed about the fact that I couldn't get control over my food. I didn't realize at the time that binge eating, emotional eating, feeling out of control around food is is that incredibly protective 
behavior that from your body when it doesn't trust that you're going to feed it enough, right? So you're starving yourself or you're, you know, even if you're not physically restricting, you're emotionally going, I shouldn't be eating this. I shouldn't be eating that. Your body fears that food is not plentiful and allowed. And so when no one is looking, it basically seizes control over you and you, you, automatically eat as much calories as you possibly can while you still have access to it. And this is how we get into that cycle of being, well, I've, you know, I've eaten a few, few rows of chocolate. I may as well just finish the whole thing. Um, we get into this, well, I've, I've ruined it. I may as well start again from scratch. And I think what was really important for me is noticing that this is an incredibly common response. Not only is it common, it's incredibly normal. It's incredibly protective. And you're lucky if you're someone whose body is seizing control over them and leading to this out of control eating. As I said, there's nothing wrong with you. What we need is that new approach to food where these things are allowed, where we start to feel normal around these foods again. And I, you know, nothing that I do is I'm not offering anyone a quick fix. I'm not offering, I'm not going to make anyone look like a supermodel. I don't want that. What I want to help people do is to feel comfortable in their bodies, to go to sleep at night, not obsessing over what they ate, to to reduce that shame and guilt we feel around food, to know that their worth is so much more than what they weigh on the scale each morning. And this is really big stuff and it's really important stuff. And what I want to say is even if you have been dieting for years, for decades, it's never too late to work on your relationship with food and your body for yourself, for your kids, for the people in your life, so that you have so much more life to lead. And that food is really, you know, I think your weight is the, your what, what your body looks like is the least impressive thing about you. And we need to be reminded of that. And body image is a huge part of that, which is why I talk about it so much in this book. Yeah, it's such a great book. As you were speaking then, Lindy, I was thinking like that all or nothing thinking is really like being a very tightly coiled spring. You know, you're in control, you're in control. And as you said, maybe you're not even restricting greatly because people that are just, you know, not even starving themselves will relate to this, but absolutely people who are eating very low calorie will. You just get so restricted and restricted and tightly wound and then it's like the lid comes off because you've eaten a couple of pieces of chocolate and you spring so far out of that container and it's like you just eat everything on the way up and then you put yourself back. You tightly wind up and you go back to restriction mode and it's this awful cycle. So I love this message of how important it is to remember that your weight's not the problem. You're so much more than how you look. When it comes to intuitive eating, you suggested that our listeners, first of all, check in with themselves to ask, am I in fact hungry before eating? Am I full? Do I need to pause? Am I comfortable? Are there any other tips you can share with our listeners on developing the habit of intuitive eating? Ah, yeah. And it's such a big one because I remember where I was when I learned about intuitive eating. It was like this light bulb moment went off in my brain. I was like, ha, this makes so much sense. A very useful tool that you can use is called the hunger scale. And so the hunger scale is a way of ranking your hunger on a scale of zero to 10. Think of it like the petrol gauge of a car. So zero, you're quite empty. You're very hungry. At zero, you're ravenously hungry. And so often I find people allow themselves to get to the point where they are emotionally or physically so ravenous that then what happens is we eat we're going to want to eat as much as we possibly can so that we can take away that feeling because it's a very uncomfortable feeling. And that's when we end up overeating and getting to the point where we're a 10 or a nine on the hunger scale. So we feel full. We feel so stuffed. We don't feel good. And what we want to be doing instead 
is getting into a habit where we wait until we're comfortably hungry to eat. So that's like a two or three on the hunger scale. And then we're eating until we feel comfortably full, which is a seven or an eight on the hunger scale. I will add that so often if you're a dieter, you're going to also do this thing where you eat when you're about a five on the hunger scale. So you're peckish. You're like, "Mm, I could eat. Or it's a meal time. You're like, okay, well, it's lunch. This is when I eat. This is when my meal plan says I should eat. This is when everyone else says I should eat. So you eat that time. What we want to be doing is finding out what is your internal hunger body clock? What is it telling you to eat? Some people thrive off having two main meals a day and maybe a snack or two. Some people need to eat frequently throughout the day. Uh, you know, All diets work. The question is, which one should you be sticking to? And listening to your hunger by using something like the hunger scale is going to help you work out, okay, well, maybe I'm the kind of person who thrives off having three main meals a day. And and that's what works for me. So rather than listening to some health guru, some external source about how is the perfect way for you to be eating, your body is constantly giving you feedback about how to look after it. So your hunger is this feedback cue, your bowels, your energy, how you're sleeping. These are all clues from your body about how it wants to be taken care of. And our job is to tune out of the nutrition noise, the wellness wankery of which there is plenty, and tune into your lovely body because it's constantly trying to let you know how it would like you to look after it. And so we just need to stop, stop listening to the noise and start listening to our bodies a whole lot more than we currently are. Now you mentioned wellness wankery. I love this term. And you have a whole podcast that's all about no, no wellness wankery, right? Because there's so much wellness wankery. It's so out of control. Um, And so, yeah, my podcast, I'm all about trying to help us decipher, well, is this something I should be trying to stick to? Or is this just nutrition nonsense or wellness wankery? I help you solve the conundrum. You do. And you have some great episodes. I'll make sure that we put the link in our show notes because I know there will be so many listeners right now who just want more from you. And even now in our conversation, I'm looking at my notes. I'm like, oh my gosh, there are so many things I want to talk to you about. But I know that you go into these on your podcast. I know that you go on a very deep dive into these topics with your book. Your weight is not the problem. Where can our listeners get themselves a copy of your book? Ah, I'd love you to get a copy of the book. It's everything I wish anyone would know to get started on this journey. Uh, You can find it from all good retailers. So anywhere that sells books. Um, And you can also hop onto my website, lindycohen.com slash book, and I'll point you in all the directions that you can possibly get the book. Um, And also, if you don't already follow me on Instagram, I'm nude underscore nutritionist. You can find all the links to get the book there. And also I share a whole bunch of content to help you like yourself in a world that's constantly telling you that you would be better if you weighed less. So if you need a little bit of a reminder not to hate your body and support to be healthy without the BS, then I'd love for you to come follow me. Yeah. And I highly recommend it. I think one of the things I've learned over the years is I have to be so selective with who I follow on social media in a way to turn down and dial down those kind of triggers that might be activated in me. And I think that one thing we can all do, particularly given that we're going into this new year, is we can do a bit of a social media cull and we can look at out the people we're following and go, is this person adding or are they taking away? And I think your account is one that definitely adds a lot of guidance, a lot of support, a lot of encouragement. So I will make sure we have your uh, handle directly in our show notes so people can find you easily. Grab the book, listen to the podcast, follow Lindy on social media, and thank you for your time today. Thank you, Kylie. 
Don't forget, we have more with Lindy over on our Venti member zone. Come on over. The link is in the show notes. I think you're going to love hearing more from Lindy about this topic. Set you free Are you gonna make a move? Are you gonna